I uh, came across a what I thought was an interesting uh, statistic the other day. Um, this this statistic was uh, showing that the percentage of Americans who are relocating, uh, not just moving across town necessarily, but moving to another city or another uh, area of our country, that that percentage is the lowest that it's been since right after World War II. I just thought that that kind of surprised me. I, I really would not have guessed that. It, it seems like we are more mobile now than, than we've maybe ever been, that we can move across the state or across the country in, in, a, in an easier way than we've ever been able to do. But, but as of a couple of years ago, fewer than 10% of Americans relocated in the previous year. And it's a number that's really been consistently dropping since, since the 80s. And, and as I said, it's as low as it's been now since right after World War II. But, but nonetheless, moving to a new city or moving to a new area is still something that most people will do at least one time in their life, if not multiple times. So just show of hands, who has moved to a new area ever in your life, even if you've done it just once? Most of us, most of us have moved to a new area. When moving to a new city or a new area, there are, I would say there's a number of, of different factors, uh, things to consider when you select where you're going to move. And, and I came across this article, um, it's by Dave Ramsey on his website, about the top 15 factors that a person ought to consider when they're choosing a new area, new city to live in. And so I just want to run through these real quick for you this morning. Uh, the first one's maybe no surprise since it's a Dave Ramsey article. He's a financial guy. He put in, the number one factor is the cost of living. How much does it cost to live in that new place where you're going? So no surprise he's got that on, on top. And I'd say no surprise number two for his list, job opportunities. Again, he's a financial guy. Makes sense. Is there, is there availability of jobs where I'm going to go? Uh, he said, number three, housing, number four, taxes, and we've all broken that one. Just so you know, we live in Illinois, we, we broke number four, taxes. Uh, number five, schools, number six, climate. Uh, th this is about the time every winter when I ask, why do I live in Illinois? You know, this time of winter, all right? Um, seven, traffic, uh, eight, safety. Nine, entertainment. Um, all of us in Eureka have broken that one. What is there to do? There's not a lot to do around here in Eureka anyway. Um, Ten, social life. Eleven, family. That's, the re that's why you live in Illinois, right? Family. Number 11, family. Twelve, health. Thirteen, food. Fourteen, culture. Uh, Fifteen, city size. He would say those are all factors to consider when you're looking at new places to live. I found it interesting Dave Ramsey didn't include church anywhere on that list. I would think he would have had that on there. Um, and I know I'm a bit biased, but uh, the, that really is something we ought to consider very highly when we're considering places to move to. Um, but but my, my goal this morning is not to complain about the list. My goal is simply to point out that when we consider where we are going to live, there are many factors that, that go into that whole decision-making process. And your list and my list might look a little different than Dave Ramsey's, 
But we have a list. We have things that we consider important, things that we check out when we're getting ready to move. Today, we are going to take a look at two different cities. Two cities. And I know my, my sermon title this morning is the same as that of the famous Charles Dickens book, but, but our focus this morning is not going to be on Paris and London like it is in, in his book, A Tale of Two Cities. Instead, we are going to focus on two cities that are presented to us in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. Two cities. We're going to examine those two cities as if we are going to be living in one of them. And the truth of the matter is, we do live in one of the two cities that is described for us in those chapters of Isaiah. One of the two we do live in. You know, normally when a person selects a place to live, there's any number of options available. In this instance, this morning, our choice is a binary one. We have two choices. There's not more than that. There's two cities. We live in one of them. It's either the first city, city number one, or it's city number two, one or the other. Now, if you can remember back uh, last week, we, uh, we saw how God spoke through Isaiah, and he was giving oracles about uh, all of these nations that were surrounding southern Judah. If you remember, Philistia, Moab, there was Syria, northern Israel was in there, uh, Cush, Egypt, Babylon, Tyre and Sidon, all of these nations surrounding southern Judah, God was speaking about them. And the main thrust of last week was that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all, not just southern Judah, not just northern Israel, all of the earth. Well, after spending some time kind of zeroing in on these specific nations around southern Judah, Isaiah transitions in chapter 24. The message that God gives to him shifts, and it's a prophecy that is much broader in nature. He's going to present to us two different cities. Both of these cities will come to understand God's righteousness. God's glory. They're going to come to it in different ways, but they'll both at the end know that God is righteous, know that God is glorious above all. What we need to start by understanding this morning is that the two cities Isaiah speaks about are not specific cities in past history or in our present time now or even in future times to come. Those prophecies that he gave about all those nations, those were specific prophecies about specific nations. These two cities are not literal physical cities on our earth. So we're wasting time if we try to dig around in these chapters for clues about, you know, is it this city or is it that city? Was it then? Was it now? We're wasting our time if we try to figure that out. The two cities that Isaiah speaks about are representative of two different responses to God. Those are the two cities, two different responses to God. I'm, we're going to call the two cities the city of man and the city of God, just so we can kind of differentiate them. They're, those names aren't given in the text, but to help us differentiate, we're going to call them that. City of man, city of God. City of man is representative of individuals and groups and nations who in pride set themselves up against God. 
seek to live their own way, seek to make a name for themselves in the world. That's the city of man. The city of God is representative of, of individuals and groups and nations who in humility bow down before God. They, they seek to live according to God's ways. They seek to make God's name known in the world. And as I said earlier, those are the only two options. There's no third city from which we can choose. Now, people can move from one of those cities to the other, and I would say that would be true of God's people throughout their history. You can kind of see times where they live in one city or the other. But we reside in one of the two. We reside in one of these two cities. Now, just like I, I read you that whole list of things to consider when choosing a physical place to live, there's a whole list of things to consider when deciding whether to live in the city of man or the city of God. And chapters 24 through 27 in Isaiah go back and forth, giving us all kinds of details about these two different cities. Uh, the details really look ahead to the end which awaits both of these cities, the ultimate end that's going to come for the residents of both of these cities. And really what fascinates me about these chapters is that, that the details given about each city are typically in comparison of one another. So, so when we see something to be true about the city of man, we find that it's the opposite is usually true about the city of God and, and vice versa. And I think you know, you'll see what we mean as we go through all this this morning. So we're going to work through together these chapters and, and see if it becomes clear which city or, or which response to God is better than the other. And, and I imagine you already know how this exercise is going to turn out. You know, it's probably not a big secret, but, but let's allow the word of God to speak to us anyway and, and maybe make an overwhelming case for one over the other. So, so let's begin by seeing how the cities themselves are described by Isaiah. And, and this is all in, um, these comparisons are all in your sermon notes uh, in, in the bulletin. They're up on the screen here. It's a lot. I really made Erica work this week to get all of this to fit in the, the section for the sermon notes. But we're just going to go down through and see how these cities compare to one another. So the first comparison, the city of man is shown to be empty and closed, while the city of God is said to be welcome and open. So let me just read these verses. Isaiah chapter 24, this is about the city of man. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Down in verse 3, the earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. And then down in verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. So that's the city of man. Compared to the city of God, chapter 26, verse 2, it says, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Now, it kind of seems like an oxymoron to talk about an empty city. Cities just by definition are full. But that's the way the city of man is portrayed here. It's an existence marked by emptiness and desolation and scattering. On the contrary, the city of God is open 
to all who will enter by faith. So one existence is marked by emptiness, isolation. The other existence is, is marked by openness and hospitality. So that's the first comparison. The second one, the city of man has gates that are broken and it lacks security, but the city of God is a stronghold for the poor and the needy. So we see that. Chapter 24, verse 12 of Isaiah, this talks about the city of man. Desolation is left in the city. The, the gates are battered into ruins. So you see it there. Then contrasted with the city of God, chapter 25, verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. So it's safe to say that those who chose the city of man probably did so because of the security they thought it would provide. And, and you know, wealth pride, power, those things promise security, don't they? But those in the city of man will come to find that the gates are battered into ruins. So wealth, pride, power, those things leave us without security in the end. On the contrary, the residents of the city of God find protection and they find security. Even the poor and the needy, it says, the most vulnerable in our world find the city of God to be a stronghold. So we see that comparison. The third one, the city of man is open to the storms while the city of God is a shelter from the storm. So chapter 24, verse 18, and this is halfway through verse 18, talking about the city of man. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. And then the city of God, chapter 25, halfway through verse 4. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Now, now that phrase back in chapter 24, verse 18, that phrase, windows of heaven, in the English Standard Version, that's what it says there, windows of heaven. The, the Hebrew word used is the same one used in Genesis during the story of the great flood when it talked about the rains coming down and the rains stopping. The windows of heaven were opened, the windows of heaven were closed. It, it, it refers to a, a storm. And the NIV even translates it that way. The floodgates of heaven are opened. So this clearly speaks of a storm coming against the city of man. And when that storm comes, there's no shelter within that city. Contrasted with the city of God, there is shelter from the storm. There is shade from the heat. It's not that the storms of life don't come, but there's shelter there. There's protection there in the city of God. So we continue on. I know there's a lot of comparisons this morning, but my goal is to overwhelm us. I think that's what these chapters are intending to do is overwhelm us one direction over the other. So chapter, or, or number four, excuse me. In the city of man, the foundations tremble and are shaken, but in the city of God, that city stands firm upon God the rock. So chapter 24, verses 18 and 19. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. That describes the city of man, the city of God. Chapter 26, verse 4. 
Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So just as there is no shelter in the city of man when the storms of life come, the very foundations upon which lives are built in the city of man, that foundation proves faulty as well. But those whose foundation is God find him to be as firm as bedrock. And, and you think about it, this is the very thing talked about by Jesus at the end of the Sermon of the, on the Mount, where he, where he talks about the wise and the foolish builders. The, the house of the wise is built upon God and his words, and, and that stands firm. But the house of the foolish, that foolish man builds his house upon anything else, and it comes down with a great crash. Fifth one, in the city of man, the earth is split apart, while in the city of God, there's a level path for the righteous. So we just read chapter 24, 19, but I'll read that again. Again, the city of man, the earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. Contrasted with chapter 26, verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. And again, this is pretty much the same theme we've talked about with these last couple details. There is uncertainty and there is danger in the city of man, but there is certainty and there is protection in the city of God. So a lot of these first ones we're talking about kind of the, the city itself, but let's move on to talk about you know, the, the lives of the people who live in those two cities. So number six, the people in the city of man are marked by continual mourning, while the people in the city of God, their tears are wiped away. So if you look with me at chapter 24, verse 4, city of man, it says, The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. That's contrasted with chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And again, that, you know, like with the storms, this doesn't say that tears only come to people in one of the cities. It doesn't say that. But those in the city of man mourn and then wither. And the difference in the city of God is that their mourning is met with their tears being wiped away by God. So in the city of man, they mourn, they, mourn, they wither, and, and, and their mourning quite literally sucks the life out of them because they are unable to find comfort in their mourning. But in the city of God, their tears are wiped away. Uh, their mourning is addressed by God in, 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 out of love, really. He moves in such a way as to bring their mourning to an end. And if you, if you think about it, the wiping away of tears is perhaps one of the most tender, loving gestures that we could experience. And those in the city of God experience just that, that intimacy, that comfort that comes from God. So continuing on, number seven, the people in the city of man sing songs of bitterness, while those in the city of God sing songs of joy. So chapter 24, verse 7, city of man, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. 
The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. And then chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. This is the city of God. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I think this kind of flows directly out of the mourning that we just talked about. Uh, those who wither in their mourning, are, they're, they're only left with songs of bitterness. That's all that can be sung. But those whose tears are wiped away find reason to sing joyfully once again. They, they give glory to God because they've, they've seen in an intimate way his love poured out to them. So we see these different songs in the different cities. Number eight, the people in the city of man are lacking in food and drink. Those in the city of God enjoy a rich feast. Chapter 24, verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. But in the city of God, chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The, the, the presence, in, uh, the abundance of food and drink is a sign of God's blessing on his people. You know, those in the city of God have a rich feast. And I think maybe in some ways this is looking ahead to Revelation chapter 19, the chapter with the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And, you know, while that marriage supper, it might indeed be a literal feast with physical food. It sure could be. But regardless, it is definitely a sign of God's rich blessing being fully poured out on his bride in Revelation chapter 19. That, that type of feast and blessing will not take place in the city of man. It's only in the city of God. Chapter ni or number nine, we're getting there. Feeling overwhelmed yet? We're getting there, I got a few more yet. Those in the city of man are as stripped branches, dry, broken boughs, while those in the city of God are as blossoming, fruit-bearing shoots. So chapter 27, verse 10, city of man. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes and there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. And you contrast that with chapter 27, verse 6, which talks about the city of God. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. One, one group is dead, destined to be burned with fire. The other group is alive, destined to continue in life through fruit bearing. So you see the contrast there. We've got just a few more before we really get into the application, what all this means for us today. I think these last few really zero in on the spiritual condition and the destiny 
of the population of both cities. I think these last few really drive towards that. So number 10, that the transgressions of those in the city of man lie heavy upon them, while the guilt of those in the city of God has been atoned for. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 24, verse 20. This is the city of man. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it. And it falls and will not rise again. But when we look at the city of God, chapter 27, verse 9, Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Because those in the city of man have rejected God, they have to bear the burden of their transgressions themselves. They bear it themselves. They've rejected God's grace. They've rejected God's mercy upon them. And while they might think they can carry that load on their shoulders, we're told that they will fall and they will not rise again. It is a crushing load, their transgressions, that they are attempting to bear themselves. But those in the city of God, however, there's also guilt, right? They are guilty of sin, but they are experiencing freedom and release from their guilt. Their sins have been atoned for, Isaiah says. They're not required to bear the punishment for their sins. And of course, we know today that is because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice upon the cross. When we accept that, our burden of sin is taken from us. We're not required to bear that anymore. Number 11, a great sword will destroy the city of man, while a great trumpet will gather the city of God. So chapter 27, verse 1 says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And if you go to chapter 27, verse 13, city of God says, in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now, in verse 1, the Leviathan, the dragon mentioned there, those are, those are both symbols of evil, uh, disorder, chaos. And it's not just in the Bible. In other ancient uh, Near Eastern texts, you get the same symbolism, Leviathan, serpent. It, it always represents evil and disorder. The fact that God punishes them with a great sword shows that he holds the ultimate victory. He holds the ultimate victory. Judgment of their rebellion against God will come to pass. It is coming. Consequently, we get this picture of a great trumpet at the end of chapter 27, and this great trumpet is used to announce victory and celebration, and it calls people to gather. It's gonna be sounded in the city of God so that all will come worship him there. And then finally, the last one, number 12, those in the city of man will die, never to rise again, 
while those in the city of God will experience resurrection. And remember, this is pre-Christ. Jesus has not come yet, but it's still being prophesied here. So chapter 26, verse 14, speaks of the city of man. They are dead and they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. And if you skip down to verse 19, describes the city of God. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So again, residency in the city of God does not mean that the first death will not come upon anyone there. But those in the city of God have hope and a promise in the midst of death, while those in the city of man will not live and, and have no hope. And, and the finality of that death in the city of man is emphasized when it's said that all remembrance of them will be wiped out. It's a very shocking picture when you think about it. Now, I promise that this is not a trick question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Which city do you want to live in? And it's not a trick question. Which city do you want to live in? I'd say, obviously, the city of God, right? When you look at the description of those two cities in these chapters, I hope you feel overwhelmed to say, yes, the city of God is where I want to dwell. So maybe the question comes to our minds, well, why are we wasting our time comparing these two this morning? It's so obvious, isn't it? The better city to live in. Why, why would God go to such length to draw this comparison during the time of Isaiah? Why do we spend a whole sermon this morning studying this comparison between these two cities? I'd say the reason for that is it, it takes discernment to be able to distinguish one city from another. When I ask the question right here, when we look at this comparison, it's an easy answer to give, but it takes discernment to see the difference in these two cities. If I were planning to physically move to a new city, and upon arriving in town, I saw a sign at the edge of town that said, Welcome to our city, where in, in two months, we're going to raise your taxes. Later this year, uh, your house will be robbed. Next year, the local manufacturing plant's going to close. And then by the end of the year, a major earthquake is going to strike our city. If I saw that sign, I would know very clearly to keep driving, right? But just like physical cities don't have those kinds of signs, the city of man doesn't have a sign like that either. I mean, we can look at this comparison and say, well, it's obvious. You know, the city of man is destined for destruction. I don't want to be there. There's not a bright, flashing, blinking, neon sign that tells us that <laughs> in the city. There is in scripture here, but I should say in, in real life, that sign is, is, is much more subtle if there's even a sign. Right? In fact, the, I would say, as is the nature of the mayor of the city of man, Satan himself, deception is used to make us think that things are better than they are in the city of man. 
deception is used, promises are made regarding security and, and prosperity and happiness in the city of man, but, but those promises lack any real foundation when removed from God himself. Now, there's, there's regular temptations in our life that beckon us to dwell in the city of man. There just are, and, and it's not temptations that are bright, flashing signs about the reality of the city of man. They're temptations that are, are, are steeped in deception. The promise is that money or fame or power or uh, relationships, substances, uh, entertainment, any of those things will provide us security and joy and, and comfort and fulfillment. That's the temptation. The promise is that we can have those things now and, and, and that we're going to be able to keep them forever in those things. But the truth is that by pridefully rejecting God and pursuing those things instead, we're missing out on true security and, and true joy, true comfort, true fulfillment. Those things cannot be found in the city of man. Those things are only found in the city of God by those who humble themselves before God. And those things are only going to be experienced by the residents of the city of God. And they'll be experienced forever by those in that city. I mean, I said earlier, choosing a city, this decision, it's a binary choice. There are only two choices. But this decision is also one that cannot be avoided. We, we cannot infinitely postpone this decision into the future. We might be able to delay it or feel like we can delay it now, but even in doing that, we're making a choice. We are making a choice. And in the last two verses of chapter 27, I, I think, speak of this inevitable day when the residents of the two cities will be separated, will be shown for who they are. So look with me, Isaiah chapter 27, verses 12 and 13. In that day, and again, this is speaking about the end. This is speaking about the day of the Lord, this day that is coming. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Jerusalem. It's speaking of this separation, one from another. Same thing in verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So, so on that day, on, on this great day of the Lord, the ultimate destinies of both cities will come to pass. The things foretold in these chapters will become final reality. The day is coming. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is my residence? Am I a resident of the city of man or am I a resident of the city of God? It's one of the two. Which city am I dwelling in? Uh, the only residency requirement for the city of God is to humble yourself before God and trust him to be your savior. That, that, that's, that's the only requirement, to dwell in the city of God. 
Trust that his sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that's going to forgive us of our sin. Right? Trust that he rose from the dead and, and in turn is going to give us new life as well, which is talked about in these chapters. That's how you dwell in the city of God. We humble ourselves before him and accept him for who he is. Uh, one, I, I guess one final word for, for those of us who, who already dwell in the city of God, for those of us who are making our residence there, let's be counteracting the deceptions of that other city by, by grounding ourselves regularly in God's truth. I mean, it's so clear, right, when you read it in Scripture to see the difference between these two cities. Let, let, let's counteract the deception that exists by being grounded in that truth that shines light for us. You know, let's be people who read the truth and speak the truth, converse about the truth, study the truth, and, and, and believe the truth that God has given to us. When we do that, the lies of the city of man are exposed. They are hidden in deception, but, but once the light of truth shines upon them, they're totally exposed for what they are. You know, the temptations to depart from the city of God and relocate to the city of man, they're, they're shown for the empty promises that they are in the light of God's truth. So let's, let's do that with our lives for our own benefit so that we can resist those temptations to try to live in the city of man, but, but for the benefit of others as well. Because there are people in our lives that are, are, are living in that deception, living in the city of man, believing the lies that are being told. As we dwell upon the truth and, and proclaim the truth and live the truth, that deception is, is shown for what it is. People can come to see, oh, the city of man isn't all that I think it to be. God has, God has made a way for us to dwell in his wonderful city. He has. It is, it is the city in which God himself dwells. It is the city where tears and, and death and pain are defeated. They are wiped away. They are done away with. It's a city with streets of gold, as it's talked about in Revelation. It's a city where the nations will come to worship God for all of eternity. I mean, that's the sign that is out front of, of the city of God. It is a wonderful place to live. There is no better place to dwell than in the city of God. So my prayer is that as we see in these chapters this morning that, that we would agree with this comparison that is being shown to us that the, the, the city of man is a place that is, that is empty, is a place that is not secure. It's a place where the gates are broken, where, where it ultimately ends in death, where we fall and we never rise again. Whereas the city of God is, is secure tears are wiped away, where resurrection takes place. My prayer is that every one of us would consider where we're living right now and if that's where we want to be living. And if not, then humbly approach God. And, and as I said, that, that's the only residency requirement. Come before him and accept him for who he is.
Would you stand with me this morning? Let's, let's give praise to God for, for his city. God, we come to you this morning, and I thank you that, uh, that through Isaiah, you, you lay it out for us. Thank you that you show us the truth about both cities. God, the truth about the city of God is, is, is wonderful, and it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring, and it, it, it's, it's where I want to be. I thank you that you reveal that to us, and I thank you that you make a way for us to dwell there. Because if it's not for you, that, that city is empty. There's no one that is there apart from you. And so we praise you for that this morning. God, but I thank you that you speak the truth about the city of man as well, that we can, we can see it for what it is, that the deception can be shown for what it is. God, would you give us wisdom as we go through our days to, uh, to choose your city? God, to see the deception in the city of man. And God, would you, would you grant us the, the wonderful opportunity to help others in that way as well? To shine the light of the truth and, and, and expose lies that are being told. God, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that not only do we have a wonderful place to reside for all eternity, but that you are there that it is your residence as well, and that you reign there. As we sing these closing songs, God, songs that, that highlight that reality, that you are the king of that city. God, may we, may we worship you, may we give you the praise, the honor, the glory that, that you deserve without question. And God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.